You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. Today's episode is the first part of a five-episode mini-series covering IPOs. This is such a broad, bountiful topic, and with so much to cover, we decided it would be better to make five episodes rather than one long marathon episode. You're welcome. This episode in particular is extra special as we get to know the IPO. We thought it would also be fun to get to know our mini-series guests, so we hosted three guests on this introductory episode. You'll hear more from each of them in turn over the remainder of the mini-series as they each dive deeper into one particular area of the IPO process. So, now that we've set the stage, let's jump into the episode. We hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and as always, I'm joined by my significantly more talented co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's national quality leader. And we are joined by not one, but three amazing guests to kick off our IPO mini-series. So I'm going to start us off by having each of you introduce yourselves so that our listeners know whose voice they're hearing. And some of these voices should sound familiar. So Jason, will you kick us off? Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. Uh, Jason Larkin, uh, based in Dallas, and I'm the Capital Markets Leader for Embark. Hi, I'm Jana Gregory, and I'm a Senior Manager with Embark in the Capital Markets Group, and I'm based in Charlotte. Hey, I'm Chase Anderson, Managing Director in Phoenix, and I am also in the Capital Markets Group and the FAS Group. Cool. Well, we have a full crew here today with a ton of topics to cover, so let's just jump right in. Uh, Jason, can you kick us off with this IPO discussion with some of the most fundamental questions? What is a public offering? And why might a private business look to undertake an offering? Sure, sir. Happy to talk through that. And it's nice to actually be talking to you guys about something other than segments for a change. So after <laughs> There's a first four, for everything. After four episodes, <laughs> I'm glad to do, do something other than segments. Yeah, so um, I think a great place to start. When we think about a public offering, it's really a sale of equity shares or bonds into the public market in order to raise capital. There's a lot of different business reasons why you might do this. Fund business expansion, uh, make strategic investments, support working capital needs, or even provide liquidity to founders and investors as you grow and mature as an organization. The financial instruments that are offered are often equity sales, but can also be bonds of, of other types. In any public offering, the SEC is going to go through and approve the registration statements or filings before you can actually make those effective to the public. And generally, uh, if it's a sale of more than 30 to more than 35 individuals, that's when you sort of get into this public offering that we're going to really dive into and talk a little bit more about um, throughout the course of this. And then um, the last thing I would just say is that it's not just one following. Often companies will have a secondary offering or other offerings as they move forward. So this isn't a one and done type scenario. Often there'll be more follow on um, offerings or different things that may occur depending upon the, the life cycle of the company. All right. Thank you for that overview, Jason. And Adam, I'm going to send this one over to you. Sure. Jason mentioned the SEC must approve all registration statements. Could you talk to our listeners through some of those rules the SEC has in regards to registrations? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of like major pieces of legislation that come into play, and I'll, I'll start with kind of the two basic pieces of legislation that um, kind of provided the framework for securities laws. So this takes us all the way back to the 1930s, okay. a little history <laughs> lesson here. Um, there were two kind of foundational pieces of legislation that really established um, a lot of the rules and regulations, the 1933 Securities Act, and then following up from that one, the 1934 Exchange Act. 
Um, so without boring people too much with the history lesson here, I'll just give you kind of the highlights of what each act really did um, and why they're still relevant, obviously, today for both public companies and public offerings. So the first act, the Securities Act of 1933, like I said, it was the first piece of major legislation around securities offerings. Um, and it really was put into place to really serve two primary purposes. The first was obviously to give investors the relevant information that they would need to make um, prudent investment decisions. And the second was to kind of prohibit any companies or representatives of companies from providing like misrepresent, misrepresented information, deceitful information, fraudulent information, um, things of that nature. So obviously when you step back from that today, you're like, well, that all seems pretty obvious. Like people want good information <laughs> to make investment decisions and they don't want to be lied to. Uh, but if you think about the times of the 30s, obviously lots of fraud and things like going around um, previously to that. So they really had to kind of put some some framework and fencing around um, investors as they kind of enter into the capital markets. You know, the two big items that kind of really came out from that legislation was one is what is known as the registration process itself. So we're going to be talking a lot today and kind of throughout our mini series here about putting together the registration statement for the IPO. So that was derived from the 33 Act. And it also created kind of a liability framework for those that were being deceitful, um, really kind of holding them accountable um, and making sure that, you know, there were you know, penalties that were involved if someone were to, you know, defraud investors in any type of way. Uh, following on from the 33 Act was the 34 Act, and this is really kind of focusing on the day two kind of investment um, capital markets realm. So once the public offering has happened, it's now like, how can we provide security to investors in kind of the day two of holding those securities? So it, it covers things like, you know, trading securities on a market um, and also with, you know, what kind of ongoing information do companies that sold public securities have to provide to the public about how their, their entity is performing and just relevant information about how the entity is doing. The 34 Act did set up the SEC, so that's where it kind of came into fruition. And then obviously the SEC can create its own, you know, regulations and foundations for um, pursuing any like legal liability against anyone that breaks any of those laws. Um, so that's the framework right there. Um, since that was the origination of those laws, like obviously the SEC has put together its own like comprehensive list of rules and regulations. They got tons of interpretive responses from questions and things that have arisen over the last, I guess, 90 years since the existence of the SEC. That's something that the SEC has continued to take on and will continue to you know, evolve that, that body of regulation as, as see fit. Uh, but like I said, that's really the, the starting point for the framework. I'm sure there's some really good stories behind those 1930s rules. Yeah, if you kind of think back to the history lessons, yeah, there were lots of uh, deceitful practices for sure. <laughs> well, there's a reason behind every rule, so there's some newer rules. And Chase, would you mind talking us through some of the more recent and modern legislation release that might impact public companies? Yeah, absolutely. It's always a tough act following Adam, <laughs> the brand trust of the firm. Yeah. But yeah, both the acts that Adam um, covered have had some changes over the years, and two of the most notable ones that are going to come to mind for a lot of people are Sarbanes-Oxley Act, also known as SOX, uh, and the Jumpstart Our Businesses Startups, it's a mouthful, Jobs Act of, uh, of 2012. Uh, both have different purposes and reasons, and... Um, you know, SOX, we'll cover that one first. That's probably the biggest one that most people are going to be familiar with. But that was the result of just large frauds in the early 2000s. And, um, you know, the government had said enough, and they passed some legislation. The overall purpose of SOX was to establish numerous requirements for both public uh, companies and their auditors, really. Um, they were designed to enhance corporate responsibility, enhance financial disclosures, 
uh, and combat corporate and accounting fraud. Um, and some of these requirements and reforms included mandating personal liability, which is huge for certain executives. You know, they're signing some significant statements. Implementing protections for whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. uh, requiring management and in most circumstances the external auditor to report on a company's IFCR or internal controls or financial reporting, which is, which is huge. Um, SOX also created our favorite friends, that the Public Accounting Oversight Board, PCOB, <laughs> which is a dear friend of the uh, of auditors I've dealt with many times. Um, and then going on next to the Jobs Act, this one uh, it was designed with the intent to help boost capital formation in the markets, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of gave a new designation to filer and filer status. Okay, so we know what IPOs are, we've touched on some of the applicable rules and regulations, and now Jana, could you give us a sense for the current market for IPOs? I feel like I've been hearing a lot about IPOs recently. Yes, absolutely. So um, in 2021, traditional IPOs raised more money than ever before, so more than any year in, in the history. Um, overall, last year saw more than 2,300 deals raising more than 450 billion, billion with a B, dollars in proceeds. <laughs> Um, and this was a 60% increase, actually, from even the prior year of 2020. Um, unfortunately, though, it hasn't all been positive. Two-thirds of the companies that went public in the U.S. in 2021 are now trading below their IPO prices following a, a sell-off in high-growth stocks. And what about SPACs? I know Adam and I actually did a, an earlier podcast about the SPAC attack. Yeah. <laughs> can't remember if that's what we called it. but SPAC media. Um, it yeah. probably should have. <laughs> <laughs> so how about an update? I'm sure there's numerous SPACs looking to successfully de-SPAC. And uh, what's the outlook right there? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, more than 400 SPACs are seeking acquisition targets. However, the pipe market has become increasingly selective in backing up SPACs, which limits their potential for success. And for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the concept of a pipe, PIPE stands for Private Investment in Public Equity, and it's often part of the process for actually consummating the SPAC's acquisition of or merger with a target operating company. PIPE financing becomes a necessary part of that de-SPACing process when the acquisition cost of the target exceeds the cash that the SPAC actually holds in its trust account. So just in my experience working on de-SPAC transactions, um, when a target company already has strong relationships with some institutional investors that supported the company on, early on, for example, like through a debt financing or through an equity financing, these relationships can be very beneficial in that pipe process because you sort of already have individuals and organizations that believe in the viability of your company. That's helpful. And we've kind of hit on a little bit of the how but what about the why? Why would uh, a company want to go public? Jana, can you help us with that one? Yeah, absolutely. So there's really several benefits of going public. Um, first, a company can raise capital to achieve, to achieve its business objectives. So this could include wanting to get capital to expand warehouses or production facilities, um, raising money to expand the company's footprint geographically by going international, perhaps, um, or just building a war chest for future acquisitions. It could also be a liquidity event for founders or other investors. It could be to increase the public awareness of the company's brand, um, to expand the company's ability to attract top talent. Um, and then also management can upgrade or enhance their experience and employability by having served in some of these executive positions um, in publicly traded companies. So that's something everybody wants on their resume, I would say. <laughs> that's super helpful. And um, let's switch gears a little bit here. Jason, what are some factors a company may need to assess when considering an IPO? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of different things for companies very early on in their journey that they need to think about um, from an IPO perspective. One of the first things is making sure that you have the right management team in place. Ultimately, you know, your CEO, your CFO, some of the other key executives are going to be out telling the story of the organization, trying to gain interest from investors. And so you've got to have that right mix of people with experience um, going through and accessing public markets, but also the um, care and passion for the brand and the company to make sure that they can tell that story effectively. And I think the second piece is this is really a transformative event for the entire organization. This is not just the executives alone. So making sure that you've got a roadmap for training, for helping all of the employees really understand if I'm going to be employed by a public company, what does that actually mean? Um, Another more tactical piece that we see pretty often is just identifying what systems do you need to have in place. You know, often companies um, that are pre-IPO may not have necessarily systems that would support the reporting rigor and timeliness that you need. And so this is a very, very much a long pole in the tent for a lot of companies. And so having that snapshot assessment to say, where are my systems? Are there any that I need to upscale um, to ensure that I can operate effectively as a public company? The other thing that's really important is having the right team of advisors. You know, not not all companies will have internal employees that can cover off on every single complexity within an IPO. And so oftentimes we see outside investors in legal, in accounting, in capital markets, in compensation, and in board structuring that really help companies and provide advice based on doing this over and over again to support companies through this IPO journey. Then the last thing I would just say is making sure from a reporting perspective you really have a plan of action for ensuring timeliness of reporting. It's something that we see a lot of companies prepare and act like a public company even before you are public to get used to the fact that we now have to close and report our financial information and be comfortable with it in a very short period of time relative to what they were doing historically. And so making sure that you've thought through that and you've got support for the any investments that are necessary from a reporting perspective. Okay, and moving along the process into deeper consideration, what does the actual process look like? Could you walk us through the key phases of a traditional IPO? Yeah, so I think there's really a couple of key phases um, for companies that are going through the IPO. The first phase is going to occur pretty early on, I would say at least six months prior to the IPO, and it really hits on some of those things that I just talked about. What is, who is your management team going to be? Make sure you get those individuals on board, understand the story um, and what the, the opportunity is to tell the story, why we're even accessing capital as an organization. Mm -hmm. Then establishing from a documentation standpoint, um, board of director minutes, corporate governance, all those different things. You want to get that out of the way very early on. That's not something that you want to be handling right up to the IPO. Um, Another component very early on in the process is external audit. So there's external audit requirements in order to access public capital. And for a lot of private companies, they historically haven't had um, a what we call a PCAOB compliant audit. And so even if you have a big four auditor or a, a large audit firm performing your audit, they may not doing, be doing all the necessary procedures to ensure that you can um, include those financial statements and the audit opinion in your public filing. So that audit process is really key. Um, then from a structuring perspective, this is another area that can take a lot of time. You know, some private companies are flow through entities from a tax perspective, which is not a um, status that you can have as a public company. So what changes do we need to make from a structuring? Are there any changes? 
working with tax advisors, working with legal to determine a structuring perspective. So those are all things, you know, six months, even further back from a potential effective date that you really want to focus on. Then you get into the second phase where you're actually preparing for that initial filing. So you're going through um, and preparing the actual financial statements, finalizing your structure for the offering. Um, you know, are you going to be an up C? Are you going to be a C corp? What are the different structurings? Finalizing that, getting a steps plan in place, which is often necessary. Um, conducting the diligence, right? There'll be a lot of discussions with investors, with the capital markets community, going through all that to really understand what is the upside. Um, and then preparing that initial S1 document and ultimately filing that with the SEC. There's a lot of components that will go into within this mini series, but there's a lot of different components to that S1, but ultimately you have to prepare it and then file it with the SEC. Then you move into phase three where there's this back and forth that occurs with the SEC. So you'll make an initial filing. They will have um, you know, up to 28 days to reply that first time and they'll provide comments. And then you'll have to determine based on their um, comments, are we going to update the document? Are we just going to reply directly? Are there situations where we need to have a direct dialogue with the SEC to really understand what is the nature of their questions and what do we need to do to update the document? So you go through this back and forth. You may also have to update the financial statements if your financial numbers go stale, right? And so you have to update for the next uh, period of financial information. After you go through all of that process, you start to begin for the roadshow. So about two weeks before you go effective, you go through the roadshow, you'll actually flip your S1 public so the entire public can see that document and then go through that roadshow to market, talk to investors and ultimately determine on how much money are we going to raise and what's going to be the price that we go out from an offering perspective. Um, and before you know it, you've gone through all that. The SEC says you're uh, able to be effective and you're on your, your merry way. So that's in a very condensed form, all the steps, right? Sarah, that's pretty quick. Yeah. You think that is an IPO that happened that fast? Yeah, that's it. That's all it takes. <laughs> so simple. Well, that's... That <laughs> yeah, you barely even took a breath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's our more traditional path. But what about some of the alternative vehicles available? Chase, I feel like you could handle the alternative vehicles. I, I think I can, yeah. And there's, there's a handful. You have some 144As, you have regulation A's, you have SPACs and direct listings. And I think for purposes of this conversation, we'll just cover two, and that will be direct listings and SPACs. And so uh, in a direct listing, it's, uh, it's an option best suited for companies that are well-established and mm -hmm. don't necessarily need capital. So I think Spotify is probably the most prominent direct listing, and this is becoming more and more common in today's practice. And in this, mm -hmm. in this practice, in this route, underwriters are not used, and that saves a tremendous amount of money from a firm, just the, the expenses incurred by using underwriters. Uh, in a direct listing, there are no new shares issued as part of this. Existing shareholders will list, uh, will, will um, have the chance to capitalize on their IPO shares, uh, essentially, uh, selling directly to the public. And then SPACs think the opposite side of the spectrum. So you have a direct listing, which is a very well-established company, big brand name. Mm -hmm. A SPAC is almost the complete opposite, which is a, a brand new company, maybe a company in hyper tech, think batteries or pharma, you know, no revenue, um, and really doesn't have kind of like a story that, like, that a, a traditional IPO company might, you know, I view a traditional IPO kind of somewhere in between a direct mm -hmm. listing and a SPAC, where they have a story, they've got revenue, they can they have some historicals that they can kind of show to the, to the public. Uh, 
versus a SPAC, which is you know very growth driven, and they kind of need some support, and they get that support through the actual SPAC, which is a pre-existing public company. In this regards, then the SPAC essentially acquires or reverse merges with a target company. Mm -hmm. Let's call it Battery Company A, and Battery Company A then becomes an operating company um, through this process and becomes the public company, and they have the support of the sponsors behind the SPAC to kind of give some some credibility to the market that hey this is this business has got a future and we're here to help see it through uh, one thing that's very important about a spac too versus some of these other uh, routes is that a spac can present financial projections so for a company that has no revenue they are able to forecast and present uh, you know many years into the future whereas ipos generally are not so that's a big big factor about why companies do go spac is that they can show those forecasts to the street did you know that Shaq was very into the SPAC? Can you say that five times fast? <laughs> that's all I remember from our last episode, Adam. I'm sorry. Well, that's a good reminder for you and the other listeners yeah, to right. go back and listen, because I think we go into a lot of detail about just the benefits of the SPAC and why a company might decide to do a SPAC. But yeah, absolutely. Moving us right along, Adam, could you cover some of the different types of issuers and filers? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So. It's important to know what type of issuer you are when you you know go to become a registrant because there are different requirements for the IPO process, you know, depending on what type of issuer type you fall into. So in general, there's basically four different types of issuers. You've got your US domestic issuers, you've got your foreign private issuers, and then two kind of new categories of issuers that have recently come about, which are emerging growth companies or EGCs, and then smaller reporting companies or SRCs. Um, so I'll start with the first two, looking at domestic issuers and foreign private issuers. So domestic issuer is pretty obvious. I think um, you know it's any U.S.-based company that basically is going to be issuing its securities um, to the public. Um, you know they're based in the United States, that company, and so it you know basically falls into that straightforward definition. If you take that definition and try to apply it then to the the foreign private issuers, it doesn't necessarily mean just because you're a foreign-based entity that's offering securities that you automatically qualify as a foreign private issuer. Um, so to be a foreign private issuer, um, you do have to be obviously a foreign-based entity, but you can't meet certain criteria. So you won't qualify as a foreign private issuer if you know 50% or more of your outstanding shares are owned by U.S. citizens or residents, and you also meet one of three other tests that you have to kind of apply. So the three tests that you also have to consider is whether or not a majority of your directors or executives um, are U.S. citizens or residents, um, whether that 50% or more of the company's assets are based in the U.S., um, or whether the business just like administratively operates within the U.S. principally. If you meet that 50% outstanding shares in one of those three tests, then you won't qualify as a foreign private issuer and you'll actually be considered a U.S. domestic issuer. So are there benefits to being considered a foreign private issuer? Yeah, there are. So that's, you know, obviously if you're a foreign-based company, if you can qualify for that status, there are some accommodations that are made, which is why, you know, you really want to make sure that if you are going to elect that status that issuer type, you actually meet the criteria for it. So. Some of the benefits that you do receive, so foreign private issuers have a little more flexibility in their, you know, the accounting and reporting framework they use to prepare their financial statements. So mm -hmm. um, they can obviously use it under U.S. GAAP, like our U.S. domestic issuers, but they don't have to. So they have flexibility that they could also present their financial statements in accordance with IFRS, or they could even use kind of a local GAAP 
um, as a presentation basis. So there's flexibility there. So if you think about a foreign private issuer that's maybe historically always done their financials under IFRS, you know, if they want to go do a listing in the U.S., it doesn't mean they have to then bridge the accounting to U.S. gap. They would be permitted to use that same kind of set of financial statements and accounting policies, et cetera, under IFRS. A few other like accommodations that are you know provided to them have to do with certain filings. So foreign private issuers don't have to file you know interim financial information, so they don't have any like 10Q type equivalent requirements. Um, they don't have to keep up with current reporting on Form 8K. So any of those types of events that a U.S. domestic issuer really has to stay on top of doesn't apply to a foreign private issuer. Um, they're exempt from other types of rules, so proxy rules, for example, um, you know, kind of the fair disclosure rules under Regulation FD is another one. Um, and they're also given a little bit more time just with when their annual filings are, are due. So, you know, U.S. domestic issuers, you know, they have specific filing dates depending on what type of filer status you have. But foreign private issuers basically have 120 days after year end to kind of issue their annual financial statements. So a little more flexibility with the timing there. So. So a lot of benefits. I don't think I'm probably hit them all here, but you know, definitely some things to keep in mind if you are a foreign-based entity that is looking to kind of offer securities in the U.S. Another type of issuer I think we may have alluded to earlier, but they're emerging growth companies. So Jana, can you provide us a little more information on what issuer would qualify as an emerging growth company? Yeah, so a private company will generally meet the EGC eligibility criteria if the company's total annual gross revenues are less than $1.07 billion, kind of a specific number yeah. there, <laughs> but $1.07 billion, and if it has not issued more than $1 billion of non-convertible debt securities when looking back to the past three-year period. Um, an issuer can retain EGC status up to a maximum of five years. However, there are revenue and debt and public float thresholds that if tripped at any point during that five-year period, then EGC status is lost, and the accommodations, which I'll discuss in just a moment, those are no longer afforded as soon as that EGC status is lost. Um, so, so in terms of benefits of EGC status, the first and foremost would be a reduction in the number of years required to be presented in the initial filing. So it's reduced from three years to two years, which that's a huge benefit for a lot of companies that are um, small and but growing and you know three years in the past can feel like a really long time ago. Also the one, one benefit is extended transition periods for adopting new or revised accounting standards. So um, an EGC can opt into this accommodation and continue to follow the private or the non-public company adoption timelines. A couple things to note here are that if a company opts into the accommodation they can they can decide to opt out at a later date but they they can't cherry pick which standards they want to comply with. And then kind of on the other, on the other hand, um, if a company opts out of the accommodation, that's an irrevocable decision. So they can't later decide to opt into the accommodation. Yeah, I'll just add one thing on that. Um, you know, most companies at our EGCs are going to opt in because if you're a non-public business entity, almost all new GAAP does have the ability to early adopt in most cases. So they could also elect the early adoption under the non-PBE guidance if they wanted to take something on sooner than later. Yeah, that's a great point, Adam. Um, and then just a few more benefits to note here. Probably the most well-known accommodation of EGC status is the SOX 404 or the Internal Controls Over Financial Reporting Accommodation. So 
EGCs are not required to provide an auditor's report over ICFR for as long as EGC status is maintained. So again, that's up to five years maximum. Um, however, they do need to provide management's assessment of ICFR, starting with the second 10K report following the IPO. And then just the last, last one I wanted to touch on here um, is that EGCs may submit their draft IPO registration statements on a confidential basis to the SEC. So that means the full SEC comment letter um, comment letter and response process along with the amended filings can be submitted confidentially, but those do have to be publicly released um, no later than 15 days prior to IPO effectiveness. And I'll just mention also that this is actually an accommodation afforded to all initial registrants now, um, but only initial registrants. So as soon as you're in an active public company, those SEC submissions are, of course, public. Awesome. That's super helpful. And let's move on to our last type of issuer, which is a smaller reporting company. So Jana, what qualifies as a smaller reporting company and what benefits does having that issuer status include? So a company can qualify as a, as a smaller reporting company or an FR, sorry, an SRC um, if it has public float of less than $250 million or annual revenues of less than $100 million and either no public float or less than $700 million of public float. So that's a lot of words there, but basically there's the public float threshold. And if that's not met, there's the public float slash revenue threshold. Um, in terms of benefits, if an SRC is also an EGC, so also meets that EGC eligibility criteria I was just describing, then um, those EGC accommodations are also afforded to the SRC. But SRC status is actually even more beneficial than EGC status um, for a couple of reasons. One would be that well, actually, several reasons. We're not going to get into all of them today, but a, a large benefit is that SRCs continue to um, only have to file, include two years of financial statements in their subsequent filings. And then also that SRC status, um, there's no time limit. So it's not like after five years you lose status. You, If you meet the SRC eligibility criteria, the company can continue to receive those accommodations. Excellent. Well, I think we've officially gotten to know the IPO, or at least a a pleasant introduction, maybe a first date. Yeah. <laughs> so lucky for our listeners, we're inviting each of them back for a second date. They're going to come back and dive into a specific episode over the next few weeks. Um, so Jason, will you give our listeners a preview of what's to come in the following episodes on this mini-series? Yes, you got it. Yeah, so um, you're not done with IPOs. There's more details <laughs> that we've uh, purposely left out for the next uh Four episodes. So episode two is going to be, are you ready? A spotlight on IPO readiness. When you think about everything pre-IPO, all the different um, phases that we talked about, going into a lot more detail on that. Then in episode three, we'll get into crunching the numbers, financial statement requirements, and common issues. So that's going to be with Jana um, going through that. I'll talk through in episode two. And then when we get to episode four, we'll um, involve one of our other senior managers from a capital market perspective, Tyler Stage, and he'll be going through beyond the financial statements, other registration statement matters. So there's obviously a lot of other com components to the entire registration statement. He'll go through all of that. And then we'll round it out, episode five, with Chase after the IPO, what's next? So that's what our listeners had to look forward to, Sarah. Sounds like a loaded schedule. And <laughs> appreciate all of you being here to help us kick off this mini-series with a bang. And thank you to our listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. We hope you'll join us for the remainder of the IPO mini-series because up next we have Mr. Jason Larkin. And it sounds like, yet again, 
He'll be talking about something other than segment reporting, so you won't want to miss it. We'll probably include segments <laughs> in the IPA readiness. <laughs> See you next time. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.